1: Let every nation know, whether it wishes us well or ill, that we shall pay any price, bear any burden, meet any hardship, support any friend, oppose any foe, to assure the survival and the success of liberty.
2: What up, what up? This is your boy Rob Clark welcoming you to the 22 November Network. Get ready for another exciting edition of the Lone Gunman Podcast featuring me. That's right, your boy Rob Clark coming at you. Stay tuned. Be right there. Hello and welcome to the show Episode number five Four of the Lone Coming Podcast Is now fully in effect Thank you for checking the show out today Got a good one for you, My man Russ LaChapelle Is back on the show And we are gonna take you through Three of the major crime scenes Um Of this case, the Texas School Book Depository, the Tippett murder scene, and the Texas Theater. And what was really going on behind the scenes? What's the real story here? We're going to try to put it together for you. Please do enjoy my man, Mr. Russ LaChapelle. And today, I have a special guest returning to the show. Mr. Russ LaChapelle. How you doing, Russ? I'm very good, sir. How are you? Doing doing quite well today. And uh, for those of you who didn't hear Russ the first time, go back into the archives. It's, a, it's a, about, what, five or six, seven shows ago. Uh, we talked a lot about the medical evidence. Today, we are gonna get into a little bit about the Dallas Police Department, uh, several key players located within the Dallas Police Department, and the obfuscation that they were pulling that day. And we're going to get into a little bit about uh, Gerald Hill, I believe, uh, and a couple other people. So, Russ, why don't you kick us off, sir?
3: Well, well, well. What we have here is the repetitive scene, basically, that we discussed as the, the premise by which the medical evidence was kind of changed or made to look differently, we have, uh, we have obfuscation here. And there's a, a bit of compartmentalism involved in this, but in a different fashion because you've got the, uh, the good old boys club involved. Here. Uh, many of these Dallas officers were pretty much started uh, in the time period Shortly after World War II, in a time period before the formulation of the CIA, uh, really in the OSS time period, so you had connections to some of these people back before the Truman Doctrine. Uh, So these these guys are you know they're doing their thing, and it's a a different kind of thing going on down at that time in Dallas. And uh, you have a couple. Of people that really everybody bowed down to there because they were known as very good investigators you have uh, Bill Decker and uh, Will Fritz as key players that you know nothing really got done till you know all these people really did their thing and of course these other players were in there at the same time and they're doing their job so they're making sure of the words they use or the actions that they do as far as their daily jobs um one key guy here when this assassination occurred is Gerald Hill. Now, Gerald Hill is a, he's not a gun tooting, holding cop. He's a personnel person. And he's involved in working near the dispatcher's office. And uh, that was pretty much run by uh, Westbrook, Captain Westbrook.
2: Right, he's more of like so a he's more of like an organizer type, right?
3: Yeah, they're, they're involved in uh, any kind of things that would go on as far as the police and gathering information on a personnel basis, and then anybody that would come in from the street or whatever. That information is all gone through in that thing, so it's an administrative type situation. Gotcha, gotcha. So you have. The assassination occurred and there was a lady working in an office by the name of Kinney who was uh, seen as, at least identified as the first one that really heard something about the president being shot and it started spreading through the office and people didn't realize or didn't want to think that it happened, but eventually it came out that it did happen and there's a lot of stuff going on as far as Like, who really found out that everybody had a converge on the the corner of Elm and Houston? And the description of who made the shots and the timing situation there, which is very close to probably between four and six minutes after the assassination occurred. Right. So you can work from that time period. And you have to imagine people running around in the office and they're trying to figure out what they're going to do. And a gentleman by the name of Gerald Hill, working there as an administrative person, he got involved because he said, well, I'm going to go, you know, they're going to need help. and They're going to send all these people down there. So he goes down to the basement and finds a, an officer, uniformed officer by the name of Jim Valentine, driving car 207. Him and Hill and a news person, Jim Hill, we're down in the basement there, and they all got in the car, and they drove from just basically one block. Now, what's interesting is Hill and his testimony says that they got a little bit delayed because there was a some kind of a tie-up on the street, but it's hard to imagine that this really did happen because he's the only one that mentions that. And the reason why I mention this is because it adds time to the timeline as far as their arrival at the corner of Elm and Houston. Right. But, nonetheless, this is a part of the, the part of the story that makes this a little more complicated, and this is why the obfuscation can possibly be to the advantage of certain people, who I believe are kind of directing many of the events that are going on. So, the three of them get to get to the corner, and that's documented. You can see it on the Cooper film. You see Hill getting out on the passenger side, Jim. Uh, Jim uh, Valentine still in the car, and then shortly afterwards you see you'll uh, get out of the car also. So now they're all out, and then Valentine, I imagine he's driven the car maybe a short proximity from the building itself, maybe down on Elm Street Extension, not too far away. And Hill goes on to say that they're out front, and then eventually he enters the building. Now, before this happened, you had Marion Baker along with Mr. Truly, Already into the building, and this is where they go up the back stairway and the so-called, so-called uh, finding Oswald on the second. So they're going up, and they get all the way up to the top. And Hill goes into the building and he says "we," but he doesn't really identify who "we" is. But he also goes on to say that they finally went up upstairs, and there's a lot of series of events where the affidavits of all these officers started coming up and searching the building there's there's things going on here that they're not mentioning they're seeing hill but hill's seeing certain things happening on the seventh floor And of course we know that the bullets were discovered and the gun was discovered on the sixth floor yep so how is it that hill knows all these things but he doesn't he's not really identified as being up to notify or or even see the events and this, this, along with a lot of other things that are to follow here, we're going to find out that Hill's kind of putting together a story to build time in the situation. So what Hill is saying is that he leans out the window, and this is seen through photography, and in that he's announcing that we found the sniper assist. Now, Hill always uses the word we, but he's not identifying people until afterwards seemingly he puts the story together afterwards when he's giving testimony or interviews to follow and he's saying that you know that and the documentation is that that mooney officer mooney a detective mooney he was the one who found the bullets well we do know that craig was up there too now hill mentions that he's, you know, he tells Mooney to stay with the shells and don't let anybody touch him and this and that. And he said there was another deputy sheriff there. He, he didn't know the name. But what's very, very interesting here is that Mooney never identifies that Hill was there. And Craig, uh, off the detective, or, uh, Deputy Sheriff Craig, has said that him and Mooney, followed by Boone, went up the stairs together. Right. So this puts Hill up on the sixth floor, at least by himself. And we have to start getting into looking at the Warren Commission testimony and the people that were not put in. Uh, last time in the bell we talk- of I was talking about how Bill Newman, probably the be- best witness to the assassination, was not called, plus uh, three other witnesses at Parkland, Vernon O'Neill and Aubrey Wright, and Chetis McGuire, they were not called. So they're covering through obfuscation in these areas. <clears throat> well, one interesting man, another man who really shouldn't have been on site, Assistant DA Bill Alexander, he got over to that school book depository at one point or another. And if Hill's identifying we and Mooney's not there, then who is we? Right. Well, <laughs> Craig identifies that as they were coming up the stairs, two men dressed in suits were coming down. And this is where I see Bill Alexander actually physically in that building with Hill.
2: Right, let me and point out real down. quick too, Russ, <clears throat> that this would give them, and I'll be pointing this out throughout our little talk when, it, when, it, when it's appropriate, but this would, what you're saying essentially would, would give them time to build, you know, move the boxes around a little bit, build the sniper's nest, and dump the shells. And possibly playing a gun without anybody knowing.
3: Very true, because there's nobody there. Everybody else is up on the seventh floor, or they're up on the roof, or wherever they are. You know.
2: Right, which would also and lend credence to the, you know when Craig says that Mooney found the shells, um, and Mooney not saying that that Hill was around at that point.
3: Exactly. So I mean. Either Hill's putting this together because he realized he had to, but he's definitely—he'll never mention Craig. But I mean, Craig offered information later on that is a key aspect of this trial of this of this whole case. Of course, we know how Craig got railroaded last time. I mean, you know, he's seeing—he's seeing Oswald coming out of the building, getting in the Rambler. Uh, you know, he's with Buddy Walters and the child that's found by the side of Elm Street and I changed that around too but the story of Craig becomes very interesting because you know Decker has him eventually right in his office right outside his office so he can keep his eye on him and eventually Craig gets fired from the TPD when he was the man of the year I mean this guy when Craig finally got to the corner of Elm Street after his movements basically which started on Houston and then he came through the middle of Dealey Plaza, and then up into the railroad area and he saw a lady in a Chevrolet and had her stop and watched. Which she eventually took off either. Um, he's in all these key places and Decker comes to the scene and he tells Craig, hey, somebody better take, you know, somebody better take charge here. So Craig does do that and he enters the building with Mooney and they go up the stairs and of course Craig's saying that two guys dressed in suits are coming down the stairs while they're going up. Now who could these people be other than Gerald Hill and Bill Alexander? Exactly. And the fact that Alexander was never called before the, uh, the Warren Commission you know it, it makes a here we got that repetitive theme again well here's here's a guy that If Oswald had brought to trial, would have been involved in a lot of key information as far as Henry Wade being the main prosecutor and his sparkling record of never losing a case. I mean, you start putting in together how possibly other crimes that were, these convictions were found for, this is a repetitive theme of how they maybe kind of did it, you know, because they're just doing what they did before.
2: Right, and let me Um, just
3: surmising this, but it fits together.
2: Yeah, and let me also point out that, you know, it's it's quite possible, you know, Craig wouldn't have known who these guys were, because he was was he was with the sheriff's department, and they were with the Dallas Police Department, the city police department, and unless they had had prior interaction together, he really wouldn't have known who these guys were.
3: Exactly, exactly, and I I I just think that he'll just took the right people at the right time, where he found out through talking to other officers what they were doing, and, and he just kind of formulated the story. And the solidification of this kind of theme as far as what I'll call lying through obfuscation and the compartmentalism of the whole thing, you can see how Hill being in three different... the, the three key places in this, uh, this whole case becomes very interesting that, you know... He could do this. I mean, after Oswald was arrested, he was the guy that went in front of the the news people and made the first announcement as to what happened as far as the arrest.
2: Yeah, and and let's reiterate that point for everybody, that Gerald Hill was at all three crime scenes. We're talking about the Texas School Book Depository, we're talking about uh, the scene of Tibbetts' murder, and we're talking about the Texas Theater, right?
3: That is correct. And of course he gets back into the building with Oswald and there's a continue beyond that, but we're a little ahead of the game. I want to stay in the school book depository. Right. So, you know, Mooney's up there, he definitely with the shells. Greg definitely saw him. Now what's interesting is that, you know, when somebody shoots from a window with a rifle, the shells don't fall down as seen by Craig in close proximity to each other. They don't fall straight down and just hit the floor and stop. Okay? We have Tom Athea, who was there filming uh, the search of the 6th floor for the rifle. The Fritz actually going to the area to look at the shells. Of course, we know that for the longest period of time, there was only two shells, but there was really three seen. And uh, Fritz later on had picked, you know, he had picked that bullet up. So was dead to the nail there as far as obfuscation of certain evidence there. Why is he picking up the third? Apparently two of the shells were were uh, okay and one had a crimp in it. Yeah. now it's not gonna work well coming out of a rifle with a crest. But of course nobody had been there so what's going on? I mean I kinda feel like Oswald and this I'm gonna identify this because when he was the hallway after being arrested, he said he was he he, he was the Patsy. And I think maybe, and and this is a, maybe a long stretch as far as this goes, but Oswald was working up on a sixth floor. And if he had any prior knowledge that possibly this was going to happen, which would identify why he was able to come out in the hallway and say, hey, I'm just a patsy, that possibly he put those shells in. Now, the reason why I say this is that the, 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 the empty shells were from a 6.5 Manlik or Carcano yet the rifle is originally said to be found with a 7.5 Mauser and this goes to what Craig's saying that the two don't relate so if Hill and Alexander planted the shells they should have had it together that they're going to if they did plant the rifle that they would be of the same make
2: Right, and, and you know, you do see photos of this rifle coming out of the Texas School Book Depository. And, I mean, from my perspective, I think they would have had to have found a, a man liquor inside as well, or brought one in, because that's what it looks like to me that's coming out. I, I haven't seen any any photos that I could possibly identify as being an actual Mauser, um, unless you take, you know, Tom Aaliyah's footage, you know, where... It's actually up in the sixth floor, and that's where Craig was, and that's what he said he saw. And and for everybody out there, you got to remember who who are so quick to dismiss Roger Craig and saying it's a Mauser. We also have uh, Boone and Weitzman's affidavits, signed, sworn affidavits, that they found a Mauser, and that is what would have been taken to court. Okay, and that alone would have been, would have exonerated Oswald as using a manly Carcano. These are two cops, seasoned veterans. You know, they can read. They they stated very clearly what they saw in affidavit form on that first day there. It's only afterwards that that, that they recant and say they were probably mistaken. But uh, you know, we'll, we'll probably get into what happened to uh to uh I think it was Seymour Weitzman. <laughs> Uh, and what happened to him a little later. But go ahead, Russ. I'm sorry.
3: Yeah, yeah. One other thing that Craig had mentioned was that when uh, Weitzman identified the the Mauser, that Fritz agreed. Okay, now, if Fritz has got one of the bullets or 6.5 in his pocket, later on, we, we got a big problem. Because Weitzman's affidavit, I believe, I think that... Uh, I think that Boone's also was, they were both on the Saturday after, the, the, the day after the assassination, they're signing these affidavits that's a 7.5 Bowser. Yep. So, I mean, there's a real big problem here when you see a Carcano going out of the school book depository and Dave doing his thing to identify all this stuff, and you got all this information that's related to a 7.5 Bowser. So, we what's going on here? I mean, it's, it's just insanity. But let's get away from that. So, what I see is Hills up there, probably with Bill Alexander. They're coming down the stairs, and they come down to the sidewalk, and there's a lot of things that go on as far as talking between the news reporters. And then you have uh, one of the head guys at the scene was Sawyer down at the, down at the sidewalk, and he's starting to petition all these things, and you get the call that there's an officer been shot in Oak Cliff. Now, if you go to the affidavit of Jim Valentine, he says that he received his keys back at the end of the day. And we also have Hill saying that he went out to Oak, Oak Cliff with certain people, Owens, uh, Bill Alexander, and I think Bill Yule was with them too, But the trouble is that when you start identifying affidavits and, and testimonies, Owens never, never says that Hill was in the car with him. And Bill Alexander, in certain interviews, never mentions Hill in the car with him. But car 207 isn't at the school book depository anymore. So if Hill wasn't with Owens and, and Bill Alexander and, and Jim Neal... How did he get out there? Right. And let's go to Earlene Roberts. Earlene Roberts is a housekeeper at 1026 North Beckley. And she identifies that Oswald came in, changed his clothes, went back out. And then she saw him standing waiting for the bus. Now, in the intern, while Oswald's supposedly in that house, she hears a toot toot and looks out the window and she sees a Dallas police car. Now the initial the let's put it this way. The newsman came in that afternoon and she identified that car as two oh seven. And then miraculously later on she gets all confused and now it's different numbers. And I thought, that's she, car,
2: ad- I thought she identified it as one oh seven.
3: Well, she did later on. Okay. She did later on, but her her initial observation in the afternoon to the news reporters, and this has all been covered up too, is that that car was identified as 207. So if it's car 207 and Valentine, by his affidavit, stayed at the school book depository and didn't retain his keys until the end of the day, and it's not clear what really happened there because he's inside the school depository doing the job that he was assigned so you have compartmentalism in that fashion I see Gerald Hill in car 207 in front of 1026 North Beckley
2: yeah I mean that's quite possible
3: it's, yeah I mean you got to kind of put these pieces together when you add and subtract these affidavits and testimonies, you come to the conclusion that Hill isn't really with the guys. that he said, "We already have basically Hill lying about Booney up in the school book depository. We also have Bill Alexander. Like, where is he, and what is he doing there? I mean, he has no business there at that point in time. Yeah, I mean, he's you a, have he's a DA. Hey, yeah, well, he's yeah, he's a DA, but." What's he doing at a crime scene? That's not really his job. Exactly. And what's he doing going out to Tent and Patton? And what's he doing at the school book depository? They have all these administrative guys that have nothing to do with the case, but they're still involved in the case at the beginning stages. I mean, you have detectives and beat cops driving squads to these places to make arrests or whatever has to be done. Remember, these administrative guys are going in, yeah, you know, going to a school book depository where they think a shot was fired, and they don't have any guns. Yeah. I mean, you know, they're putting their life on the line without a gun. I mean, it's kind of strange to think about. So you have to consider the fact that there's got to be something maybe going on other than what's going on. So, uh, I mean, I see Hill tooting that horn in front of 1026 North Beckley. And I also see that. What she's what early Roberts saw as Lee Oswald was not the Oswald. I believe it was Larry Craford. I felt this for a long period of time based upon testimony and, and Larry Craford being knowing Tibbet. He's knowing Jack Ruby. Uh, yeah. and he's kind of evasive in his you know, he doesn't, he, in his testimony, you're getting the opinion. Hey, hey, stay away from me. I don't want to get
2: involved in this, okay? And let me give you a little nugget, too. Uh, when I talked to Greg Parker, uh, of course, the show hasn't aired yet, but... Um, and this is not a spoiler, because the show will have already been out by then, by now, when people hear this. But he's come to the conclusion that, like you, that Oswald never was staying at Beckley, Um there was a, there was somebody registered there under the name of oh lee um but there was also a guy staying there named herbert lee so um and i don't buy the i don't buy the story that larry crayford was living in the carousel club you know what i'm saying i'm sure he would ruby would have set him up with a uh, you know somewhere to stay a rooming house which is kind of appropriate for the type of person that crayford was and uh but yeah go ahead
3: yeah, well, just to, to give a little more, a little more potency to what you're saying here, Earlene Roberts is the sister of uh, Bertha Cheeks. Now, Jim Garrison was hot on investigating Bertha Cheeks because of her association in business matters with Jack Ruby.
2: Right.
3: So that's just a little bit. You know, we can't really pull it fully together, but. You're starting to see how there could be possibility because all these people know each other. What what is going on here?
2: Yeah.
3: So I mean, early Roberts, the last, her last observation is that Oswald is way oh, who She thought was Oswald's way to gets a to bus, and I see that that person being Larry Crayford goes with Gerald Hill, and the time is just about right, probably five minutes after one. They get in the car together, and they're down there at 10th and Pat. And I see the assassination of J.D. Tibbet as a planned thing. Okay. And there's many other players that come into, into this thing, um, like Perry Olson, who Mark Lean was big on. And you had uh, Doris Holland who made observation of another police car in the alleyway. And I remember that Tibbetts, when Tibbett pulled up on the street, he blocked off and a small driveway alleyway at that time. Now it is not set up like that. They, they, they've changed the configuration a bit. But she made observation of a police car down that alley. Yeah. Now, there was no other. There was supposedly Kenneth Croy was the first one to officially get to that scene that we have observations of police cars in an alleyway, and that, that could be a timing aspect of where I see Hill in car 207 coming around the back, and he's in that alleyway. Now we go to Aquila Clemens who was never called before the, the uh, Warren Commission, and she's making an observation of a short, stocky guy, which could match the description of Gerald Hill. And she's also matching him up with another guy that was at that scene, was tall and kind of thin, who I see as Larry Krayfer.
2: Right. Now hang on a second, Russ, because I just had a a slight epiphany here. Um, You were saying that you you think that the murder of Tippett could have been planned. Uh, What about this scenario? Um, Because we have reports of Tippett, of course, waiting at the Glocko station there across the viaduct on houston street what if he what it? what if Tippett was assigned okay to keep an eye on oswald and say oswald instead of instead of leaving the depository that way um you know walked you know say he caught the bus or the, or, or or a cab or some other way say he hopped in the rambler whatever anyway Tippett waits there and never sees him come all right so Tippett's panicking and because we yep. have that we have the report of him going in the top 10 records right making a phone right. call nobody answers or if they do he doesn't say anything okay so what if Tippett was assigned to, to track lee oswald you know to keep an eye on him and wh- exactly where he was and what if Tippett met up with uh gerald hill and larry crayford at a you know, or say they ran into each other, or it was a predestined uh, spot to meet, and they were pissed because he lost Oswald.
3: Could be, you know, or well, not, only, not only that we know that Ruby, in the in this fact of the whole
2: thing, you know, he knew a lot of people in Harry, you know, Harry Olson, right?
3: Why oh, I probably I would have to say he was probably there too, although his. His excuse was he was watching some of the state in a nearby area, but there was a lot of information you could pull on with Larry, Harry Olson, who shortly after all this stuff, he he took off to California, I guess and eventually went to Las Vegas. So he's, he's he's out of town. you know. I mean, Larry Crayford had to be brought in from, to give his Warren Commission testimony. So these guys are all trying to escape this thing, to try, to try and stay away from something. There's something right. going on
2: here. Larry Crayford left town in a hurry the next day.
3: Yeah. And, it, it, you know, Harry Olson had uh, what they say was a two to three hour conversation with Jack Ruby and Harry Olson's girlfriend, you know, and which may play into the fact that uh, some people surmise that in that conversation, hey, we, that Harry's telling him, hey, we got to get rid of Oswald here because by then all the information started channeling and you know we had the wallet that was found which I still haven't gotten into yet that you know Oswald's at 10th and Pat, Oswald's up at the school book depository he's assassinated the prison uh, we've arrested uh, one Oswald out the front door and they're carrying away a, what might be a second Oswald up the alley in the back of the Texas theater Right. so I think that Something went terribly wrong, and they had to cover their tracks Here, And you have DPD officers that either were doing these kind of things before and got away with it, and something went terribly wrong, and they had to start covering their tracks. And when they tend to cover their tracks, you start seeing things like I'm trying to talk about with Hill, as far as what I see is a lie up in the school book depository. Uh, uh, there's a lie attached to who he got out to Oak Cliff uh, because Westbrook got out there with another officer and he he went to the he was over by Jefferson at the first point and he gets involved in finding the jacket and there was a guy that they thought was suspicious that went into the uh, I think the church there was a church there and that yeah. ended up being a false lead. The guy was just reacting to the fact that he had heard stuff. <laughs> so Westbrook, who again, who is an administrative guy, he talks about being given a gun by one of the officers. Okay, And he's in that area of the alley off of Jefferson that they're trying to find this guy who they say was leaving the crime scene. Now, of course, Westbrook is coming in after the fact, so at that point, there's no way for all these guys to communicate with each other. And this is why I think something went wrong there, and the right hand and the left hand that used to work together don't quite know what's going on. And, of course, we have the videotape that will, from the uh, local TV station that shows Warren Reynolds with Westbrook, and they're looking at this wallet. Yeah. And contained supposedly within this wall, there's two points of identification linking Oswald and uh, Alex Heidel together. Yeah, how convenient is that? You know, it's, it's a really strange thing to look at because Westbrook eventually, he ends up in the, in the Texas theater also. So how, how do we make sense of all this other than the fact that something had to be terribly wrong? Something, something is not right here. Because they all eventually including the FBI agent Barrett who was at Tenth and Patton, he ends up at the school at the at the Texas Theater. Hill ends up at the Texas Theater. Bill Alexander ends up at the Texas Theater. Westbrook ends up at the Texas Theater. And they're all coming into the building in different fashions or different times. Some of it is not clear, but we know Westbrook came in from the from the back. We know Hill came in through the front in his initial climb into the building was that he said he went and searched the balcony, and he didn't find anybody up there. Right. Although there is citation that says that there there was a, an Oswald, or there was a gentleman arrested from the balcony, yep. which Hill said he already searched. Yeah. Okay, so, but now they're all converging, and then there's the actual arrest that happens in the seats, and McDonald's in the tuffle, he's the first one that goes down, and then you have all these cops converging. And I think even one of them thought that they had one handcuff on Oswald, and then apparently there were so many hands in the pie there that you know they almost tried they almost handcuffed one of the officers. <laughs> of course, Bill Bill Carroll is said that he's the one that took the gun out of Oswald's hand or it dropped to the floor, or he got the gun. There's there's conjecture there too. And so we have Bentley involved in this and he's caught in photography and a beautiful shot outside the school book outside the Texas Theater and you see Hill in the background and Bentley's chopping out a cigar and another officer by his side as they're putting Oswald into the backseat of the car that eventually takes him back to have his formal arrest and we now have Bob Carroll driving that car. We have Gerald Hill in the front seat, and Gerald Hill says that Carroll gave him the gun that was taken at the at the arrest inside the theater, and gives it to Hill. You know, he, Carroll, Carroll's involved in that, but there's a little bit of obfuscation there. That the stories don't but. From what we can see now, the gun was handed from Carroll to Hill. So now Hill has the gun that supposedly when they put this whole charade together that Oswald used to kill Tippett. But we have a bent firing pin that don't work. We have other things that come along that just don't fit together. How are you gonna how are you gonna shoot an officer when the mechanism for the gun don't work? Uh, but then later on, more stuff comes out. But in the back seat, we have Bentley taking a wallet from Oswald yeah, the with the same with kind wallets. of identification that we have
2: uh, being pulled out of the
3: wallet. It's five, ten, and Pat. Now, I mean, nobody has two wallets that they carry around. So, what's the right story?
2: Yeah, nobody drops a wallet at a, at a murder scene where they just killed somebody either.
3: I don't know. The chances are less. I mean, maybe, you know, if he's trying to stay quick and, you know, things happen and he, you know, had to get out of there, it's possible. But what man carries two wallets, <laughs> right? And you can't, he, he, he'd say he drops one at 10th and and he also has one taken out of his, out of his person uh, in the backseat of uh, the, the police squad while after he's been arrested. I mean, I, I don't know,
2: I don't know anybody who has two wallets. Well, I could see I could see possibly if one wallet only contained uh, Alex Hydell identification and information and one wallet was was Lee Oswald only stuff but you got both wallets being found with both kinds of identification in both of them.
3: Yeah, yeah. It makes you think that there's one story that's not right and which one is right? I don't know. I think uh, FBI Barrett thinks that, that uh, the because he saw the wallet at Tenth and, and Patton, he believes that the, the wallet that was taken in the back of the squad never happened. He's basically calling Bentley a liar.
2: Well, I mean, and, if, it, if it did happen, but, then you gotta you gotta assume that the one found at Tenth and Patton was an uh, obvious uh, attempt at framing Oswald.
3: Yes. And who brought
2: that wallet there? Well, possibly Larry Crayford, if he was impersonating.
3: Well, there you go. Now you're, now you're back to why I think that it was not Lee Oswald and 1026 North Beckley. And that also explains the honking, because Hill is not going to... If he'll if you assume that Hill is driving that car or somebody's driving that car, because early Robert saw the car, saw the squad, okay? Whether you want to believe it was, it was 206, 207, car five, I don't care what number you want to sign to it. There's a cop outside that conveniently at the same time that the so called Oswald is in in ten twenty six. Something is not right there. There had to be a reason why a honking is going on outside that outside that house.
2: Yep, and when you look at the timing of how long it would have taken Oswald to actually walk and get to 10th and Patton, it impossible. doesn't work. Yeah, it's impossible. Unless you he You know, and that's it. why
3: you see the Park Commission also changed the time of the, of the assassination of Tibbet. It's impossible. I mean, you've got an ambulance picking up his dead body and taking it to South uh, Southern Methodist. Uh, hospital, and he's pronounced dead officially at one thirty. I mean, there's just not enough time for it. The, the first cop supposedly on record came after his body was gone.
2: Yeah, that's what you bothers know? me. That's what bothers me, too, Russ. I mean, you know, I, I picture it in my mind as like, you know, these Keystone ambulance drivers pull up. They hop out of their, sh- they hop out of the ambulance, throw Tippett on a stretcher, shove him in the back of the ambulance, and go. <laughs> I mean, that's the way I see it, see it playing out. When in actuality, and and I was having this conversation with somebody yesterday, who who tried to tell me that uh, that the ambulance drivers weren't trained paramedics or, or trained at anything other than driving an ambulance to and from. And I just can't see if you would pull up on a crime scene where you have an obviously dead. Officer who was the recipient of four separate gunshot wounds three to the chest and one to the head. He's dead. Okay, I mean, he's obviously dead. I don't understand why they wouldn't wait for the police to show up, you know, or try some kind of, you know, at least stop the bleeding, uh, CPR, you know, something like that on scene before they actually, you know, try to get him somewhere so fast. Hey, well,
3: Again, this is orchestration. Is it's more that supplies to the theme of what I'm talking about here, and not only that, Tibbetts got a bullet hole in his head. Exactly. I mean, that's 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 like gangster stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> that, that, that's some heavy nonsense. I mean, you you're you're an ambulance driver. I don't care if you're Keramak or not. You see a bullet hole. You know that man's dead. Right. Obviously, dead. I mean, you, you know it. So that leads. That leads to what you're trying to say. That why are they pulling the guy out there. Why aren't they waiting and do all the official stuff? Nope, they're carting this thing away now. You know, again, they're pulling that body out of there, away from the Tenth of Patent crime scene in a very quick period of time after you were shot. Yeah. You and know, and, and if you you take a look, I mean, you, you look at the distance from Tenth of Patent to Southern Southern Methodist. Hospital, I mean, you, you got Tibbet shot. It's good. I mean, they, they got the, the this ambulance doesn't pull up in, in a few seconds. It's not like they're sitting around the corner waiting for Tibbet to get shot. Okay, so you got time there. You got time that they, they're looking at him, they pick him up, they put him in the ambulance. They got to go around, close the doors, get in the thing, drive it to the hospital. And he pronounced officially dead at one thirty at the hospital. He's DOA. Okay, now so you've had all that time together, you start, and now it starts subtracting from the time that the Warren Commission is saying that he was shot. You know, so uh, this is one of the things that I wanted to talk to Joe McBride about because, you know, we're narrowing this thing down. I I believe Joe believes it's about 106 was the time.
2: Right.
3: Well, that blows Helen Markham's story right out of the fact, right out. I mean, there's no way. I mean, these people—is everybody on this case Superman? You know, it's—it's <laughs> yeah. it's impossible to think about
2: it this well, way. That's why I said I pictured the the ambulance drivers and and Keystone cops. You know, like in, this, <laughs> in those old time movies, you know, where they're moving in fast forward. It seems like, <laughs> yeah, people in real life—you can't speed the film
3: up. I, things happen in, in a in a time that we're still living by now. You know,
2: yeah, and the man's obviously dead. I mean, they're not going to be in a hell of a hurry. You know, to get him to the hospital, and well, I was talking to somebody. They said that the ambulance service was only two blocks away. I don't know if that's right or not, but well,
3: they'd have to be probably a half a block away to do it the way the Warren Commission said.
2: Right, right.
3: I mean, it just isn't going to work. I want to go back to Westbrook for a second here because, like I told you, his his testimony says that an officer gave him a gun. Now. There's nothing that says, well, I gave the gun back to the officer. But what's interesting is that when Westbrook gets back to his office, somebody puts a gun on his desk. Okay, that's what he says. And apparently it had to be Gerald Hill. Because Gerald Hill had a gun given to him in the squad at the time of arrest, brought back, and he's even got a picture of him. There's a picture of him holding the shells in one hand and the gun in the other, open. Uh, you know, it's, he's, he's just apparently just taking them out,
2: right?
3: Yet this, this, this gun that Westbrook has has shells in it, hmm. and he can't remember who put the gun there. And he said that another officer doesn't name the guy. He asked him, he didn't know. And what's interesting about Westbrook is, he has to be a detail man. He was on, he was at the DPD since 1941. He was promoted two times to the position that he was. Okay? So he's a captain. And this guy's got to have details. But at all the convenient points in time when he should know something, he can't remember.
2: Yeah, have to and here's
3: me. a guy, after he retires from the DPD, supposedly, Supposedly got involved with the CIA and they put him down in Vietnam to be part of the security team. I think he was CIA all along going back to the OSS. And this puts him into the good old boys club with Alan Dulles and a
2: few other people. Probably so. I mean, either that or our military intelligence. There's something going on here because the CIA
3: was heavily infiltrated into the Dallas police there's a couple other examples of this and when we look at this whole case from start to go and you get Alan Dulles as the director of the Warren Commission when he was fired by Kennedy you start to understand that these guys
2: are playing ball together they know what they gotta do yeah that's a, that's a big red flag people uh, Just yeah. look look at the Warren Commission and see who's on it and <laughs> there you go that's all you need to know, it, really.
3: Yeah, it, it, it really is. I mean, and these guys, you got to remember, too, with Decker's power and Fritz's power, you have certain things that, you know, just the interrogation of Oswald and the notes and, and the shell that he picked up and all these things that come into later. And, a, and, and this even leads credence to why Craig was fired from the DPD because he knew too much. And then, you know, you can say it as you will, all these little accidents that he had. To me, they're trying to figure out a way to get rid of him. Just like they did, I mean, Buddy Walters. Buddy Walters was so up Bill Decker's ass, it wasn't funny. Yeah. He wanted to be the next guy. He, he was Bill Decker's boy. And he ended up in a mysterious accident. You know, he's the guy that was right there when that, supposedly FBI guy picked up that shell with supposedly I think a forty five caliber. Right. And you know, they're trying to say the projection of that shell was somewhere coming from the intersection of Elm and Houston and it was obfuscated back when it really came from what they say is a knoll. Now this goes back to part of our conversation that we had before about the shooter on the knoll. And that might be the, that might be where that came from, Bob.
2: Yeah, and, and also Weitzman, uh, what happened to what happened to him? I think he ended up in a mental institution towards the end of his life, and he met an early demise as well. And
3: yeah. I mean he was... these you, know, you know, they might be able to get like Weitzman. They got him to change his story. He went on CBS and he interviewed. I was mistaken. Blah 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 blah. Right. Uh, they they didn't go after Boone. For some reason, I think they just kind of quieted it up. You got to remember that all those boxes that are available was from the the DPD, as far as their effort, it didn't come become available till the mid seventies. Okay, so a lot of that stuff didn't come out till later on.
2: Right, and most of it didn't see the light of day until what nineteen eighty nine, I think it was.
3: Yeah, well, that was yeah. I think that was part of the assassination review boards stuff if i'm not mistaken
2: well that that was a little too early for that um yeah but maybe getting it online was
3: mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm not sure i it's in that same time period though it, it definitely is i mean you had somehow or another that information came out whether it be through the uh the review board or through freedom acts you know
2: yeah because i'm trying to th- tr- i was trying to think back when um uh, Ray and Mary LaFontaine had access to those DPD uh, files. I think it was 89 uh, when when they did get access to them. I don't know if they would had been uh, – they'd probably been open, like you said, for years before that, and nobody just bothered with them.
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, you know, I've always been a guy that felt that if you're honest, if you stay honest, you don't have too much to worry about. I mean, people try and say this and say that to make you look like a liar. But eventually, they've got to tell lies to get that, too, you know. So eventually, a liar is brought out through. it. This is where Hill is the one of the key central players in all these things, Is he's at the three places. And he was the guy that announced to the newsmen after Oswald was brought in the first step of, of this whole thing. So that begins the orchestration of the media. And then the media is playing ball, and you know if you watch all the major networks, if you watch their presentation during that time the assassination occurred, you start seeing all this information. I mean, it was they were talking about the Mauser first, and then they finally had a comeback. So well, no, it wasn't a Mauser; it was a man like Carcano. The FBI gets involved, something goes up, and then it comes back. And then you have Paul Brody, who says the, the FBI came, and now mysteriously on that Monday, they have fingerprints on the gun. Uh, you know, it's all after the fact, right? You know, it's it's just. And then of course the Warren Commission comes along with Dallas as the director, and then they and basically he's directing where the information goes. You know, but I, I just see it very important to understand that. These guys that don't get called on this, the Warren Commission—they are the guys you have to look at—and I think this fits into Mr. Joe McBride's idea that you look into. And I guess he really got it from Penn Jones that you look into the areas that are least investigated because those are those are the things that are really going to tell you what's going on here. It's it's kind of strange that you know they did all this stuff as far as the assassination and figuring all this out. But as far as looking into who killed Tidbit, uh, Tidbit the Dallas police just kind of, you know, this is one of their own guys. And they give him a memorial service and a big funeral and also the top of his wife
2: and this and that. But they really never go anywhere with it. Right. They did a very, very shitty job of, of actually investigating that and nailing down exactly what happened. Yeah, well plus Harry Olson take him off Yeah. I know I mean uh, I know Dusty uh S. R. Dusty Road, he's been uh he's been on the trail of Harry Olson and hopefully is gonna be interviewing him soon, so we'll see where that leads.
3: I think that his uh his idea of who was at that tenth and patent's a little bit different than what I'm presenting here. Right. I, I'm not sure that he's really into this. Larry Crayford really being a guy at ten twenty-six North Beckley, but it, you know, Larry Crayford being that person really starts to
2: pull together a lot of the stuff that makes sense here. Yeah, it definitely and, explains a lot. And you know, when you're looking at Larry Crayford, I, I, and there was also a, um, I believe they were at the B and B. They were seen together, him and Ruby, very very late into the evening that Friday night. You know possibly conversing about how things were going to go the next day um and you know the, the events of of early saturday morning before crayford actually left town you know where, where, where ruby grabbed him and, and george senator and was riding around uh, taking pictures of billboards if you believe their story you know I, th- <laughs> I think they were um trying to best parse out how this was going to go and eventually settled that you know, Oswald was going to have to die. And uh, Craver probably is like, all right, you know, I'm done here. I'm getting the hell out of town. Peace out. See you later. And Ruby's like, all right, just take whatever cash is in the register and get the hell out of town.
3: Yeah. Well, you know, one other key point here, too, is that um, Fritz and D.A., uh, Assistant D.A., Bill Alexander, went to Ruby's safe deposit box. and Supposedly, there was nothing found in there. Right. Okay, now, going back to the school of thought here, as far as the power of these gentlemen, uh, either they found something in there and it went away, okay, I don't know. There has to be a reason why Ruby on national TV would kill somebody.
2: Right, when we have... That's
3: insanity. That's insanity for someone to do that.
2: Especially someone who, who... we. Who has never done it before? I mean, you know, t- if you're a, if you're a natural born killer, if you're a uh, you know, uh, just a that kind of person in general that, that would be able to kill people at will, um, you know, which was no indication that Jack Ruby ever did or or was that type of person. You know, to to take another man's life for uh, seemingly noble reasons just doesn't fit in with ah. with anything that. that that uh, Jack Ruby ever did before that point
3: now you know the association of Tibbet Oswald and Jack Ruby you know it's not very clear but if you want to go with the fact that they all knew each other and some of the reasons certain things are happening I mean Tibbet was supposedly painted as this you know wonderful husband and you know been with the force a long time but it was never promoted uh, there's been some information or say rumors that, that Tibbet was involved in drugs at some point or another
2: and, and if you want to
3: go there he, the association with Ruby I've heard rumors of that too you know because Ruby was into so many things uh, gun running, drugs everything you and know? women and So that might be where that all fits in, and maybe Tibbet got caught with his pants down or something, and they had to get rid of him. That's another. That's another aspect that possibly too.
2: Yep, and uh, a good resource for people out there to check out. Um, I ran ran across a good book. I don't know if have you ever read any of uh, the early researcher. I think his name is Joachim Jostin.
3: Well, I've read some of that stuff. What I've made a point to, Rob, in my time investigating a lot of stuff is not to read too many books. Right, Uh, right. I've been been basically into the commission, okay, which I explained the last time we talked, and then studying everything that happened as far as the official investigation went, okay? You know, the, the different committees and this and that, and just watching time, Associated with it, and what I call is theater associated with it to make, to come to the conclusions that I have. Right. Some of these, I think some of these writers, and I'm, and I'm not trying to put them down, but I think some of these writers channel their information or did channel the information before it all came together. You know? Yeah, I mean. And they have to backtrack on some of the stuff they did. So I just kind of take it along to the point where it's accumulated to where I think. You know, like five years ago, I pretty much came to my conclusion about all of these things, putting them together. And I think last time I said the only thing that really changed any of my ideas was Sherry Feaster's work about the triangle associated with the blood spatter evidence. But now we got to get into the stuff that's coming out with the Zapruder film not being quite on the level. So that isn't a done deal either. Okay. Right.
2: Yeah, the only wow. reason I mention him is, is just because, you know, this cat was writing books before the Warren Commission report had even come out. I mean, he was, and he was one of the early ones to finger uh, Larry Crayford, and you know he, he had he put together his points very saliently uh, uh, concerning uh, Larry Crayford. He had him uh, pegged as one of the prime suspects, and when you when you look back to um, early. Early, I mean, early, early books uh, written, you know, when the information is fresh and, you know, it's still, people are still willing to talk and, and you could have sources, um, you know, very well placed sources, which I think he did have. Uh, he had to have had somebody in, in the DPD as a source to get a lot of his information. Oh, um, yeah. yeah but, I, I was, it had to be so. You know, I, I, I
3: mean, you that. look at Mae Russell. I mean, I was exposed to her when I was a youngster because, you know, she went, uh, I think one of the first stations that that took on her broadcast was out of Buffalo. So I started listening to maid a long time ago. I mean, you know, when I was, you know, that's another part of the association's stuff and listening to her. Because if you listen to her stuff and sit down and week after week after week and the accumulation of all this stuff, and that's where my question marks first started coming about, you know. Maybe. And then seeing rusted judgment, uh, and of course that all led to really kind of the first book I read was Lifton's you know. Yeah. Which really that really got me into the medical evidence, which we discussed last time. And of course, I don't quite go along with Lifton and I don't quite go along with horn but you know i've listened to what they do and i think they're a central part to understanding this case but again the information migrates and there's so much obfuscation and compartmentalism involved in this thing how can we actually know even i'm even my theories are correct okay i can only take it as i see it and put it together
2: you know? right yeah i mean it's hard to parse out you know 50 years 50 years after the fact when You know, thousands of books have been written. You know, thousands of articles have been written. You know, people have their theories out there, Um, and that's the only reason I mentioned that book is because I was in. Yeah, I've been intrigued by you know first first day testimony. You know, the earliest reportings uh, are generally where most of the truth lies when when it comes to these big events, uh, including the Kennedy assassination. At least as close to the truth as we're going to get because as time goes by. Stories change. Witnesses uh, change their testimony. Um, You know, things change over time. And and if you can get back and get to the heart of the matter as early as possible, I think that's where most of the truth, uh, at least that we can glean, can be found. Mm
3: -hmm. Well, uh, to support that thinking, there was a thing that I talked about with Earlene Roberts, that those news people, she's telling them, you know, car two hundred seven there in the afternoon. Right. You know, and you got, you have DPD and FBI at her house before Oswald was even arrested. Yeah. And that now, what are they doing? How did they know what to do there? How, how do they know what to even get there? Right. I mean, what nobody... are they doing there? You know, are are they pulling clothes out of there and swapping them and putting Oswald's clothes in? Who knows what they're doing? But what? How could they know? How could they know before they got to Oswald That they're looking to do something
2: And how did they even know he was even there Cause
3: that, I mean, that's, that, the that's, that address, that's the point That's the earliest evidence You're looking at the earliest evidence and it went away
2: Yeah cause went that, away. nobody had that address I mean he, the address that I think they had on file At the school book depository For him was 605 Elsbeth, Or at the very least they had his Irving address
3: Exactly They went out to Ruth Haynes and then, yeah. of course, that's another whole charade going out with her.
2: Yeah. Well, we'll save that for another show, Rob.
3: <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I mean, it just goes on and on and on, Robbie. It Just, I mean, but these guys are all professionals. Every one of them are professionals. And why is it that this don't make sense? There has to be a reason. Just like the insanity of Jack Ruby killing Oswald, which was my first revelation in this case at eight years old that's what i saw in my eyes saying to my father this guy has got to be crazy
2: you know even an eight-year-old can realize this you well, he's either crazy and or severely severely motivated for self-preservation <laughs>
3: really
2: motivated. i mean why i think
3: that's the key right there he was severely motivated you know there's too many associations you know Curry comes out and says not only a handful of the cops know it baloney even Hill himself saying that most of them know him. Hill knew what Hill knew Ruby for over 10 years
2: yeah they knew who he was that's for sure
3: oh
2: so I, oh my god did we hit did we hit just about everything there Russ or is there anything yeah, else I, you'd I, like to you, add you or know, again
3: I go back to what I said in the last interview then I hope that some of the things I'm saying, it's not maybe the first time it's been said uh, but I'm hopeful that this opens up some new thinking and we can go from here together to, to get closer and closer and closer I, mean, I really feel at this point we're never going to fully get it because there's too much going on, even when 2017 comes out and we're supposed to get all these CIA documents like I can't for life of me feel that we're just going to just go, okay, well, here's the real deal. you know. Exactly. It's not going to do that. I think there's going to be, again, another level of obfuscation to cover that up because there's something so big going on here, and it's got to keep going, and it's got to cover the tracks of all the other things that happen afterwards, which we discussed in the medical evidence one. Uh, it's just never going to come clean, but, but we sure are a lot closer than we ever were. That's for sure.
2: No doubt. No doubt. Well, thank you, Russ, for coming back on the show, man, and, and talking about this. I think a lot of people will find this useful and will do like you said. At least it will give them something new to think about, a different way to, to look at the case and some of the aspects wrapped up in it. And, uh, dude, I appreciate it.
3: Absolutely. I'm, I'm hopeful to speak to Joe McBride here in the next month, and, and maybe he'll even hear this podcast and, and hear some of the things I've said that'll give him a little bit easier perspective, because I was hopeful to talk to him in person,
2: right, and well. maybe
3: he, there's some other things that go on I, I think that, you know, maybe he even might want to try and talk to Joe at some point, try to interview with him, you I know, because he's the guy who really, really looked into this deep, uh, another guy possibly would be Bill Simpich um, he's heavily on Westbrook
2: Yeah.
3: what's going on with him, I, those would be two good guys for you to speak with because they really look at this thing uh, for what it is, I think. I mean, really, it's my opinion, but, you know, a lot of this stuff makes a lot more sense than it ever did before, you know. It yeah. certainly makes a lot more sense than the Warren Commission that's
2: ever doing this to it. Yeah, I mean, well, Joe, Joe reached out to me several, several months back before I was even doing guests, and I explained to him, you know, because he, 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 he said he would have no problem coming on the show and talking about it. Um, it, but it, it, was just, it was at that point that i really wasn't equipped for guests yet and now that i am you know i'm gonna i'm gonna take your advice i'll send this show to joe see if he can listen to it and uh see if he'd like to come on and talk and uh hopefully in the future russ a short future um you'll come back on and we can get into something else yeah certainly so i I've
3: certainly looked at this you know even beyond the association of the events around surrounding dealing plasma because it There's also intriguing events that happen into Watergate. And then my basic feeling is that it all kind of ended with when J. Edgar Hoover was kind of carted out of his place at his death. (laughs) Exactly. That's really where the end all of all the players that had to be involved at the level they were were taken out. And there was a new after that, you know
2: yeah sounds good i'll have you back on here in a couple weeks and we can get into watergate and uh, the untimely demise of of hoover and uh anything else you want to talk about sound good
3: that's that sounds fantastic to me always always welcome to, to try and push this case a little bit further
2: cool deal all right people well that's about it for today uh i thank russ LaChapelle again for coming on and talking to us today um this son of a bitch is in the can. Beam up to the satellite down directly to your ears, people. This is Rob Clark on the Lone Gummy Podcast, and we are out. Make sure you tune in next week when my special guest, Charles Cliff, comes on the show, and we get into the garrison investigation full bore. You won't want to miss it. Thanks for listening. Till next time. We'll be
1: Restrictions may apply. Plans and costs for coverage may vary. Call Protect My Car for details. In these hard economic times, you've got to do whatever you can to save money. One of our biggest expenses can be our cars, especially when unexpected repair bills hit. Not anymore. If you do own a car, truck, or SUV made from 1999 dollars or higher, you could stop paying for car repairs. That's right. You might not have to pay a penny to have it repaired. Just dial star star 1149 on your mobile phone now to see if you qualify. You must have an automobile made from 1999 or higher and all Repairs for your engine, transmission, and much more can become a thing of the past. Dial star star 1149 on your mobile phone today and get your car protected before your next repair bill hits. That's right, total protection for your car and no more repair bills. Just dial star star 1149 on your mobile phone now to see if your car qualifies. That's star star 1149. Never pay for car repairs again. Just dial star star 1149 on your mobile phone now. Dial star star 1149.